0: All right. I just want to introduce our guest today, uh, David Chung. He comes to us from uh, Edmond, um, from Henderson Hills Baptist Church. He's been here once before, I believe, last summer. Um, brought the brought the message then. Um, it was mentioned first service that um, David's from LA. Is a fan of LA sports. Wanted to confirm that doesn't necessarily mean Golden State Warrior fan, but um, so, so yes, yeah, so we we'll keep him. But. Um, Uh, There is a short bio if you want to know a little bit more about David in the bulletin. But David, come to us. Thanks, guys. I actually went to college with Russell Westbrook. I remember seeing him around campus, and he wasn't much back then, honestly. Uh, Just walking around in his hoodie, but yeah, crazy seeing him on TV. Uh, Great to be with you guys. Again, let me uh, pray, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you that uh, you've gathered us for your glory. Thank you that when we awoke this morning, we awoke in you. Not because of anything we had done, but because of you keeping us that way. Thank you, Father. Lord, we pray that as we look to your word now, you'd help us see. Uh, You'd help us gain, you'd help us learn and grow in the likeness of your son. Um, Help us to adore you better, help us to live more rightly uh, for having studied your word this morning. Help me to speak your word clearly and not falsely. Um, Would your spirit truly be with us and be honored uh, by our gathering. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Something I want to get more into is reading biographies. I didn't really grow up reading a ton of them, but the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that there's so much to be learned from these people who've gone before us great men and women of the past, especially people who've lived significant lives. There's so much to be gleaned from their failures, their wisdom, all that stuff. So recently I bought several, bought one about Teddy Roosevelt, former president. One about Steve Jobs, and one about William Wilberforce, uh, a guy who, he was really the first one who translated the New Testament into English. I haven't started any of them, so don't ask me what really happens with these men, but once I do start them, what should I expect to find? I should expect to find parts about their childhood, right, how they grew up. I should also expect to find the steps they took to go from where they began to what they became. Any good biography would do those things. If somebody wrote a biography about your life, that's really the same thing that you'd ask them to do also, wouldn't it? You'd ask them to look at every significant chapter of your life and give you a fair assessment to publish a fair account of your life, the good, bad, and the ugly. Well, Our our passage today is kind of like that. It's kind of like a spiritual biography. We're looking at Ephesians 2 this morning. The first 10 verses of that chapter. So go ahead and turn there. And we'll see that it's divided into three parts. First part is where we came from. Where we came from. And that moves into how we got here. Where we came from, how we got here, and then finally what we're doing now. So a three-part, simple, short, general biography of our lives. So let's dive in from verse 1. Where we came from. Ephesians 2. He's just ended chapter 1 with a quite literally soaring description of Christ's rule over all things. God raised him up above all things. And then he takes this quick, almost effortless turn to face his audience next. His audience who is very different from Christ, who is positionally, categorically, very different from Christ. Now his audience included both Jews and Gentiles. And this particular crowd would have been very aware of the spiritual dimensions of life. They're very aware of the sort of spiritual evil forces all around them that were really governing the visible things in their life, that were affecting their life even more than, than the things they could see. And not only were they aware of them, their awareness of them caused them to be afraid of them. They were afraid because these powers, these forces, couldn't be conquered, couldn't be controlled. In fact, not only could they not be conquered or controlled, they conquered and controlled them, the people. it's, it's, It's one thing to hear about the dangers of drug abuse. It's quite another thing to have experienced the dangers of drug abuse yourself, either in you, in your person, or somebody you know and love. It's really the same information, but a totally different level of depth. That's sort of like what's happening here. Paul's hearers weren't just aware of the presence of the existence of evil spiritual forces. They themselves had succumbed to their power. They themselves felt what it was like to live under their influence. And this had happened so much so that Paul goes goes ahead and calls them dead. Doesn't mince words. He goes straight to, you were dead. What does he mean by this? Well, his description of how this state occurred tells us. Verse 2 says they'd walked in this in trespasses and sins, following in the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air, who is the spirit in the sons of disobedience. They'd walked in their sins. It's, they'd walked in their trespasses and sins. That's just the way of saying that there was a total category of evil that they filled and did and lived their lives. They left out nothing. And all that worldliness had come from the devil's involvement. Now, they didn't have to go very far to see what worldliness was like. Ephesus was a major city in the province, the biggest city, in fact, in that region. Gigantic marketplace, very bustling area. A lot of people would come and go. But what it it, it probably was most famous for was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was a Greek goddess. And Ephesus, in the heart of the city, was the temple to this goddess. And it was so large, so magnificent, so grand, that in that day it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Everyone would have known about it. Many people would have gone to visit. And actually we see it in another place in Scripture, in Acts 19. Paul shows up in Ephesus. And when the people start hearing that he's telling them that man-made gods are not real gods, what do they do? They gather in this arena, which archaeologists say it sat at least twenty-five thousand people. The, the townspeople gather in this arena, and for for two hours straight, they say, "Great is Artemis of Ephesus." Great is Artemis of Ephesus. Thirty minutes later, "Great is Artemis of Ephesus." An hour later, "Great is Artemis." Of Of Ephesus, all together, tens of thousands of people chanting this one refrain. Worldliness. Deception. Like the Pied Piper story we read about. He plays his flute and he leads all the rats out of the city. The devil played his flute and they scurried out in their sin, following him. You don't get much more opposed to God than that. Following the world, following the enemy. Spiritually, Paul's insisting that you don't get much deader than that. That is their heritage. That's where they came from. Where do they come from? They were, they came from corpses. That's their heritage. Paul goes on. Suddenly, he shifts from talking in second person to the first person. Verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We. Usually when you hear somebody you look up to associate themselves with you, you, you feel elevated. You feel good, right? You feel esteemed. Not in this case. Paul, the famous missionary, the missionary to the Gentiles, the Christian par excellence, he joins himself to them by saying, we were all dead. We were all chasing after the passions of our flesh. If anything, by including himself, he's insisting that all without exception were dead men. Were hopeless. If he is among those, then certainly, They all were, too. No exceptions. Their lives were spent as prisoners to their own desires. They walked in their sin. They followed the world. They belonged to the devil, and they obeyed their flesh. Ungodly. 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 Dead. They were children of wrath because of that, and it earned them God's pure and angry justice Consider your own life When were you walking toward God's wrath When was that for you None of us came into the world obeying God None of us came into the world trusting in him for salvation None of us came into the world enjoying him above all things What walking what world following What enemy chasing were you saved from? Did you come from? Did God save you from anything? Or did he merely boost your self-esteem? We can't ignore how verse 3 ends. Paul tells them that this self-gratifying behavior made his listeners like the rest of mankind. Now, that that may not sound like much to us, but to a Jewish listener, that would have been really significant, really embarrassing. Like the Gentiles, like the rest of mankind, the unchosen ones, the ones unknown by God, the ones forsaken by him, the unspecial ones, like them, like the rest of mankind, like those unclean Gentiles. You too were the same, dead. Being of the, quote, chosen race, being able to trace their history back to Father Abraham offered them no spiritual advantage. They too were dead. I don't know about you, but I I come from a very religious family. And one one of the biggest spiritual obstacles I had coming to faith was that I grew up basically believing that I was better than most people. It's sort of like you ask people who drive, and most people believe that they are above-average drivers. Mathematically, that is impossible. But nevertheless, we all believe, for the most part, we believe we're above-average. So I thought the same. I think a lot of people who grew up in religious homes often have that hurdle before them. The thought that I who prayed at every meal, was the same, was no better than the swearing, sleeping around, smoking person? No better than him or her? That's what basically kept me from understanding the gospel. A fundamental misunderstanding of God's grace. Who are those that you still consider yourself superior to? Who's the rest of mankind in your life? Who needs God's grace just a little more than you do? If you're not a Christian here, we're really glad that you've joined us. If a Christian has ever made you feel or told you that you are a worse sinner than they are, they are wrong. If a Christian has ever made you feel like you're a worse, more needy, spiritual person than they are, they were wrong. Because they didn't see their own need. They were blind to themselves. All of us were walking toward the world and away from God. All of us were so unmoved by our spiritual deadness that we kept walking. We kept going. We chased it. We ran after it. We touched. We tasted. We explored the things that killed us, the very things that separated us from God. We loved couldn't get enough. If you're a Christian, that's, that has to be part of your story. That's part of every Christian's story. Can you relate to that? If you're a non-Christian here, can you relate to that? Can you relate to coming from, following, following, godlessness, lostness? Could that be where you come from also? We've seen where we come from. Our heritage, our background. Now let's see how we got here. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God. The famous pastor once said that the entire gospel message could be packaged in those two three-letter words, but God. We see that sort of sentiment all over Scripture, just two examples. Psalm 3, David says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 130, he writes, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, O Lord, counted my sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. But God. It's the cry of anyone who's been at their wits end and found God. It's the answer to our deepest questions. It's the lighthouse after being lost at sea. Have you considered lately, as that verse says, but God, that he is rich in mercy? That an eternal characteristic of God, an unchanging characteristic of God, is that he is rich in mercy, have you, have you thought about that lately? It's from that rich mercy that he sees us, that he approaches us, that he engages us. It's a rich mercy that he has for us. Not a slim one. Not a thin one. How about that he loves you with a great love? love how Paul insists that it's a great love with which he loved us. Some of us might be embarrassed at that thought. Great love? I mean, love, sure, I'll take that. Great love for me? But in our embarrassment, to deny who God is, is always our loss. His love is not for keeping at arm's length. His love is too, too great to be measured. Too great to be measured, and yet it is pointed at you. Directed at you. A great love. Will you believe him? To be loved greatly is life-changing, and there's no greater love than God's. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking in them, but God. We were following after the world, chasing after the enemy, like disobedient sons and daughters, but God. We were living for the passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. We've been saved. While we said yes to whatever our flesh wanted, he made us alive. While we were scratching the bottom of the addiction pit, he made us alive. While we flaunted our idols in his face, he made us alive. Your deadness was no match for a living, loving God. By grace, you've been saved. There was an Englishman in the 1500s. His name was John Bradford. And whenever he saw a criminal being led out to be executed, he would look and he would say, there goes John Bradford but for the grace of God. He would say, criminal, walk out to the gallows and say, there goes me, but for the grace of God. He was eventually burned at the stake for his faith. Friends, the grace of God is that while we were all sinners deserving God's judgment, he made us alive with Christ, and he made us alive with Christ by having Christ die for us. God's son bore our sins, bore our world chasing, bore our flesh loving, and he died for them in our place. So you look above, chapter 1, verse 20, just a few verses earlier, God, how does God respond to Christ's sacrifice? What does God do for him? Verse 20, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God rewards Christ. If you've ever wondered where he is, that's where he is. Yes, his his spirit dwells in us. But his original home, where he prepares a place for us now, where he enjoys perfect glory, is at the right hand of God the Father. Above the prince of the air, far above any other force, far above any other challenger, Of his authority, Jesus sits as king over them all. The prince of the power of the air has no power over Christ the king. So when God made us alive, when God made us alive together with Christ, that means, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Being alive with Christ means being seated with Jesus, the one who did all the work for us. We get to share in his reward. He's been raised, so have we. We too then are enthroned above all those evil powers, above all those dark forces, those things we are fearful of. Suddenly we find them far, far below us, seated with Christ. There may be some here who regularly struggle with their faith, be it doubt or anxiety of some sort. Can I comfort you? Can I comfort you with what we see? Can I encourage you? If you're in Christ, if you've trusted him and him alone as your hope for salvation, if you found God merciful and loving to you, a mere sinner, can I tell you, your life is as secure as Christ's is. If Christ is alive, then so will you be. As long as He is, you will too be. Can I tell you that His knowledge and His love for you will never be interrupted? Can I tell you that nothing you could do or that somebody could do to you could push you off that seat in the heavenlies? It's a very roomy throne. tell you that god puts you there in the first place and there's not a single person that he's made alive together with christ that he's forgotten about or changed his mind on if you've been made alive with christ you are his you are with him as long as christ is there so will you be take courage take heart rest your soul on that truth trust that he's given you a home forever He raised and seated us with Christ. Why did he do this? What was the purpose of of this all? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God made us alive in Christ. And he seated us with Christ. Why? So that the kindness of that act, the niceness of that act would show in the coming ages, just how rich he was in grace. And he's like crazy rich in grace. Super rich. His grace can literally pay for anyone. No one's sin is too costly for him. As we sang earlier, the weight of every sin was upon him. Very rich in grace. Paul says he's immeasurably rich. That's not hyperbole. That's not poetry. That's not imagining. That's not hoping and wishing for. That's assessment. That grace is immeasurably rich. You might know people or you yourself might be tempted to think in times as you examine your life that God's been a little stingy to you. And he's held back a lot of the good stuff from you. That's you. Remind yourself that while you were still a sinner, while you were a sinner, running, running, walking, following the world in your sin, that he personally chose you while you were running to hell and personally cleansed you with the blood of his own son and invited you to live with him forever for free. He's held things back from you. If that still leaves you wanting, you may actually not have received the invite in the first place. You need to think about this. God isn't seating people who disagree with how rich his grace is. We've been saved, and it was by grace. We've been saved, it was by grace. It was by immeasurable grace we've been saved. That's how we got here. We've seen how we're, where we're from, seen how we got here, and now let's see finally what we're doing now. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you've spent really any time in church, you you might be familiar with these verses, particularly verse 8 and 9, one of the most famous scriptures in all the Bible. For good reason, also a wonderful summary of Christian salvation, a wonderful summary of how it's God's work and our sheer inability to earn his favor. But I don't think Paul's primary goal is to give a helpful summary of salvation doctrine. I think he's certainly doing that. He's certainly provided us that. I don't think that's his aim. I think what he's mainly doing is just showing how incredible this deliverance is. He can't help but express himself. Look at the words he's using. Great, rich, immeasurable. It's less like he's teaching a class and more like he's singing a song. This ought to be how we consider these verses. Not just things we keep in our back pocket to show off to our friends. But the truth of our position in Christ, not just the system of our salvation, the song of our salvation. That we corpses were gifted life by a merciful God. He gave, we can only receive. We receive simply by faith. That's our song. In fact, to drive the point further from verse 4 to 10, that entire paragraph. There isn't a single thing about us contributing anything to our salvation. That whole thing, that whole chunk, you look at at like the verbs and who's doing what, there's not a single thing to show that we are doing anything positive. All we brought was the problem. All we brought was the thing that needed to be fixed. We have nothing to boast about, as Paul says. Of course we don't. God's the only one doing anything this whole time. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us. He shows off his immeasurable riches, and he created us for good works. There's a reason we aren't just zapped up to heaven once we're saved. In a very real sense, as Paul shows us, we now are already with Christ, seated next to God. But we're also still here, aren't we? We're also still here on earth. And here on earth, we are God's own workmanship why to do the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to do not only are we crafted by him his workmanship what does he say he says we are created in Christ what does that mean he didn't it means he didn't just take corpses and take their dead hearts and use a defibrillator on them and charge them up and awaken their old hearts it means he replaced their hearts entirely He gave them completely new hearts. So if you're a Christian, know that you have a new heart from what you once had, a totally different one, a heart that knows and responds to him. There are no zombies seated with Christ. There are only new creations, brand new. And what do new creations do? What do new people do? They walk. Now we've already seen That we, where we once were, where we came from, we were walking. In our deadness, we were walking toward the world, toward the enemy, toward our flesh. What does he say here? When we are new, we also walk. But in what? Not in the ways of the world. Not following the devil or the flesh. We are now freed to walk in holiness. We're now freed to walk in good works, toward godliness. We were once slaves to sin. Now freed to Christ. That's what we're doing now. We see that God has done everything for us. So, in response, in the most reasonable response, we live in accordance with how He would like us to. So, what instructions do you find in Scripture that you routinely? Avoid. What do you find in Scripture that you like to kind of gloss over or ignore? The good works, the ways in which God would approve of you to live. Maybe it's telling the truth. Maybe it's being gentle. Maybe it's praying. These instructions, these commands of God. Are we walking in them? Consider your life. Search your hearts today. Ask God to help you walk in the way he approves. Let's close. We've seen in this passage where we come from. We've also seen how we got here and we've also seen what we're doing now. It's, it's the universal Christian biography. And we can say it's, it's quite the rags to riches story, Right? There's no poorer than dead. There's no richer than seated with God. That's us. That's our story. That's your story and mine. Now that vision caused John Owen, a famous theologian in the 17th century, to say on his deathbed, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. He didn't get those mixed up. On his deathbed, he's saying, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. While we've we've been given new life here, we still remain in this land of the dying, don't we? We still await the fullest life to come. Until then, knowing what God has done for us, knowing that he has good works prepared beforehand for us to do, Let us walk in them with grateful hearts and let's consider like we see in Matthew 4 what's happened to us. Verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness, us, have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them, a light has dawned. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truths found in your word. We thank you that today, here in Enid, Oklahoma, we can search them and gain from them. We ask, Lord, that you would implant them deep into our hearts, that they would bear much fruit for your glory and our good. Lord, would you bless this church, shepherd them through this time. Would you use your word to do so mightily, in Jesus' name.